What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. When it comes to investing in innovation, trust the experts. RoboGlobal provides laser-focused investment portfolios that deliver access to robotics, AI, and healthcare innovation globally. The HTech portfolio captures the technologies transforming the medical space, providing unique exposure to best-in-class companies. Investors, turn to this diversified approach backed by research from the experts. Learn more today at RoboGlobal.com HTEC. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Jacob Durham. Our customers could see, you know, when we hear when we hear something, we're going to take care of it and make sure it's better and make sure we're always offering the highest quality product that we can. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Jacob, thanks for being on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, fun to continue talking about crowdfunding like some of our other shows uh, with somebody who has really been able to uh, superiorly beat their initial expectations. Um, tell us about the start of Basics and, um, and specifically how little you guys invested <laughs> along the way preparing. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun part to talk about. Um, so, we, uh, so it started out with me and my cousin. I, my background, I got a master's in accounting, worked for an accounting firm. Um, got bored of that pretty quick and jumped out and did operations with a family, with a family business. And while I was working there, I was doing sourcing with China and also working on the customer end, uh, dealing with customer operations. And uh, me and my cousin went to a, a jazz basketball game and decided that we wanted to get more out of our careers and out of our lives. And we decided to, we'd wanted to start a business. It had always been a goal of both of ours to do that. So we um, decided we'd go that route. And my cousin, John, knew about Kickstarter and we began, you know, researching that and living in that. Every day we'd look through project after project. And we decided that would be our route. And we learned that uh, wallets were a good route. So we, um, over the course of about, <clears throat> I think it was six months, we studied wallets, figured out how to make the best wallet we could and ended up with the basics wallet. And um, that, that R&D process, fortunately, only cost us $200. So during the whole the full investment in this company was $200. And with that, we, in October of 2014, we put up our Kickstarter campaign with a goal of $10,000 and ended up raising 170,000. So that was a pretty good return on that 200. We were pretty happy about that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, after that, we put the wallet on our site and now we're just keep developing more products and trying to build our brand a little bit more. Sure. And we're going to have links to basicsproducts.com right on Jacob's page on Ideation Collective for anybody who's driving around to work wants to see this thing. Um, 
So I think when we were talking earlier about this, the things that you brought up are some of my favorite things about crowdfunding in general. Um, you think about for so many people, especially somebody like yourself that has invested all the time and effort in getting a master's degree in a, in a, a trade, you know, in accounting, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you've got this career path. There's all these family expectations, you know, especially for for people who are married. There's this spouse and everything we planned on for our life. And then you're out there trading dollars for hours and realize this isn't what you want out of life. I mean, we got so many, you know, you got a dozen years of school on the conveyor belt system teaching you to trade hours for dollars. Then you got another six years getting your master's, right? This idea mm-hmm. of changing gears, there's so many hurdles for people to feel like, oh, but I'm so invested over here and there's the risk and there's no risk in staying in this accounting life I don't like <laughs> or, or these other things, right? You, yeah. There's just a risk of wasting your life. Um, and you talked about it takes it takes so little to to be able to um, test it and to get started. And for oh. me, that's so exciting about lowering the hurdle here. Um, yeah. However, I do think that there's a couple of interesting things to bring up from what you just said. So the one is uh, you guys weren't waiting in blind. You were actively pursuing the, the knowledge, like where do we fit in or where is there the opportunity? You talk about over and over um, – looking at all those products, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like you were deeply trying to understand the market instead of just going with your first best, your, your first good idea. Like how many iterations did the wallet go through over those six months? Um, so we, uh, we went through probably at least a hundred different prototypes. I mean, at that time, my wife was actually pregnant. And so she would be pretty tired at night. She'd go to bed around, you know, eight or nine o'clock. And I would go down in the basement and sell wallets for until about one or two in the morning, just different, ex- different examples of it. And I'd take pictures, send them over to my cousin, and he'd say, yeah, this looks good, but let's change this and that. And I we go back and forth and just keep trying to create something better. So it was a long process. And at that time, we were working uh, about 40-hour weeks at work and then doing this on the outside. So it was a, it was a busy time. But, yeah, we went through a ton of iterations, um, studied wallets a lot, bought a lot of samples of you know what was already out there. And, yeah, it was a long process. But, yeah, we had a lot of iterations for sure. So another thing I'm interested in is um – you know, you're seeing that there's a lot of other wallets out there and mm-hmm. you chose to get into wallets. You know, mm-hmm. for so many people, they hear this, oh, you need to do a blue ocean and we need to, you know, we need to do something that no one else is doing. And yet you guys go into a space where people are already. Now, personally, I see the genius in a, like a wide market, you know, that you know, people have an, a need for and can you edge out the competition? But so many other people feel like, no, we need to come up with something that's 100% original. Nobody's ever done before. What, where did your decision of let's do wallets come from? Um, actually, at the time, that was something that me and my cousin were actually both looking personally for a better wallet. So that spurred it. But, you know, from my experience in um, retail, I learned that if you, can, if you can find a product that the masses need, if you go into any household and you can find that, chances of selling it are usually better. And so we wanted to do something that, you know, everybody needed on a daily basis that appealed to the masses and the wallet fit that. Um, and so for us, we just realized, okay, if we're going to go in this space, we have to be different somehow. And we have to add a convenience that no one else can offer. And there were a lot of elastic wallets out there. And as we tried all the elastic wallets out there, we realized that the one thing that was hard about them was accessing your cards. So we found the one way to access your cards through a pull tab on an elastic wallet that hadn't been done before that made it. So it was what we feel is the best you know, minimalist wallet out there because of what it is. So for us, it was noticeable innovation 
that um, wasn't like earth shattering or groundbreaking, but it was enough to have people say, you know, that is better than what's out there. That is enough to make me want to try that out. And that's kind of what was our thought process. Yeah. Um, so a, a hundred, a hundred versions of it. Um, yeah, at least. <laughs> so, um, a lot. so at what point, at what point did you know this is really it? Like how, so, you know, how do you, how do you not stop at number 85? Like how do you, how do you, what was your test? What was your measurement of knowing, okay, when we get to this level, that's how we know we're going to feel good about going out with it. Um, let's see my, uh, my cousin that I work with my business partner, he is, um, ruthless on critiquing. He finds, he, he doesn't stop until it's perfect. So he's the one sort of like a Steve jobs approach. You know, he would never give up until it was exactly what he wanted. And I was more the type that was, well, this is probably good enough. But for us, it was, you know, we just kept trying and trying until everything, every little thing on it worked just right. There's a part on the wall that where the stitching has like the way the leathers folded and it makes it so it slides, everything slides in just a little bit easier. So that when we used it, there was nothing where it was like, oh, I wish that this did this or I wish it did that. When by our end product, we were like, there's nothing else I can think to change on this. This is exactly what I wanted. So when we innovate and develop products, we use them every day. And once we can get to that point where we say, you know, there really isn't anything else that I would think I wish this did that. That's when we're like, okay, I think we got something here. So I think using it every day and just experiencing it in real life is, uh, is our real test. Yeah. You know, I know not everybody can be creating a product or service that solves their own problem, but man, what an advantage when you're your own feedback loop. Like, is this yeah. good enough that I want it? Like, mm -hmm. What an advantage, huh? Totally. Um, well, so, uh, let's let's talk about another one for a second. So um, you're working you're working in the uh, family company. You're you're sourcing this stuff from China, putting it in Walmart and Costco and Target, and and working with the WalMarts of the world. And your family sees the success, and they say, "Hey, what about doing one of these for our company?" And you guys did the Technique bag next, right? Mm -hmm. And on that one, you said you asked for ten thousand, but got seventy five thousand, and feel like you learned some things different on that campaign. Yeah. What, what did you feel like was different for that one? So what we learned with that one was, you know, we, we went back on what we had originally decided. We wanted to create products that appeal to the masses. We created something that fit in a niche. And the interesting thing about crowdfunding is that it's such a different mindset of a consumer. The consumer in Kickstarter is very different because when they come to your Kickstarter page, you have to convince them that your product is unique and good enough that they're willing to pay now and wait three to six months to actually receive the product. And that type of consumer is really interesting. So if you think about your funnel, you know, you have to first grab people, pull them to your site. And then so with wallets, you can grab like the whole US. But when we did a camera bag, you can only find people who work with DSLR camera bag, cameras. So that narrows it down. Then among those, you have to find people who will actually um, be willing to be patient enough to buy and then wait three to six months to actually get their product. And that's a hard sell. That's a hard thing, especially nowadays when people want instantaneous gratification or instantaneous you know, reward for what they're doing. It's, uh, it's hard to convince them. So we learned that through crowdfunding, um, niche products and niche um, things can be really hard to, to get the sell on. Um, so that was a big lesson we learned. Another thing that we learned was when you're doing crowdfunding and you're a new brand, there's, a, there's definitely a... Um, a trust factor where, you know, if you go and buy something from Apple, you trust them. But when you're a new brand, people don't know if they can trust you. There have been frauds on Kickstarter where people have said they were going to make something and they didn't fulfill. They just took the money and ran. 
Um, so when you're doing that, if you start off with a product that's worth, you know, $200, like our camera bag was it, um, it's a lot harder to spend $200 if you don't hundred percent trust the company. So with and, our wallet, why don't, you, why don't you talk about the bag for just one second and show like, the, how, like explain what was, you know, I'm looking at some oh, pictures yeah. of it, but explain what was innovative about it. Sure. So the camera bag, it was a modular camera bag. And that was the key thing was, you know, you had one bag that you could unzip across the middle of the bag. So you could have two smaller bags. So t- when people have, are big photographers, they'll have a camera and they'll have like, you know, three to 10 lenses that go with it. And depending on what you're doing, you may take one lens or more or less. So the bag was, would allow people to have one bag that would allow them to take any amount of photography with, if they wanted all their gear, they could zip them both bags together or they could pull them apart and have a smaller excursion with just the camera bag and one lens. So that was the selling point on that. It was a modular camera bag. And what I think is interesting is that the shoulder straps work when you, when you, you know, it's like Voltron here when you put both bags together <laughs> and then the, and then the straps on. Right. But then yeah, you the can straps, bring was... just the top smaller bag if you just need your camera. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. The straps are created to, that was a hard part to design, but they're created to work with any bag combination you end up with. Yeah. And so I'm interested, you know, um, compared to the wallet, this is a much more in-depth product. Do you, mm-hmm. did you work with manufacturing extensively before even offering the thing so that you knew you could produce it like this? Or is it ju- just, you knew enough about the market that if you had the money, then you could work with manufacturing or what, like, where were you at on that side? Yeah, we did work really extensively with that. Um, with the, with the wallet, it was, you know, we, I just knew we could do it cause I had sourced so many products from China. I had enough familiarity that, you know, if we, we if we did, had got, got enough demand, we could go to China and I know I could get it done. But with the bag, we set up factories beforehand. We had samples made, like the sample you see in the video is an actual sample from the factory that manufactured the end product because we had to have, because the bag is a more expensive item, we had to have all those costs nailed down 100% before we could go offer it so that we could make sure we could protect our margins and everything like that. So yeah, the, there was a lot more work up front on that bag with the factory to make sure we nailed it all down and had it perfect. For sure. Sure. Um, you know, going back to the wallet for just a second, um, you know, most people on Kickstarter are, are happy to hit their goal and anything above is great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you credit this 170000 in sales when you're asking for 10? What do you, what do you feel like? Is it just product market fit? Was, how good was your video? What, like, what do you attribute that to? Um, there's a lot of pieces. One of the... Um, there, there's so many pieces that go into it. You know, you have to have a product that fits the category. You know, the main demographic at Kickstarter is men 18 to 35, roughly. Um, and so the one number one is the product has to look good, has to, you know, fit a need. Then you have to have a good video. You have to have a good page that explains it. But for us, the thing that made the most difference, <clears throat> which I think every entrepreneur learns really quickly, is that you have to, you know, you can have the best product in the world, but if you can't get the word out, no one's going to buy it. And so for us, we tapped in with a company called Funded Today. Oh, yeah, we had Zach on the show. That's great. Yeah, exactly. So when we were doing this campaign, we were about um, 15 days in on a 30-day campaign. And we said, um, you know, if at this point we we had about $13,000 made. And we said, you know, if we could get this to $20,000 by the end, that'd be amazing. And we were just hoping we could get there. 
We hooked up with Funded today. They started running Facebook ads and online advertising. And it was incredible the change that happened overnight as um, we got the word out and people saw this product. Um, we started going from, you know, $500 days to $5,000 days and $8,000 days. So for us, you know, we do a lot of work. There's a lot of science into getting the page and the product right. And then we connected with them to get the marketing done right. And that made a huge difference. And that got us to the 170,000. We went from 13,000 to 170 in 15 days with them. So that was definitely a huge part of it. That's great. Yeah. Um, for anybody who's interested in that, go, go, to, uh, go to our episode about um, Zach Smith, founder of Funded Today. And he talks more about that science and how they know what kind of ads to run and stuff. Um, so, uh, after the Durham bag was the, was the desk next or was the notebook next? Uh, the notebook came next. So tell us about the notebook. Yeah. So, so we finished the bag. I left Durham and went on to be an entrepreneur, to be like a full time in basics in this company that we had created. Um, and when I did that, it was about the time we were ready to launch. So we launched the notebook and the notebook is a, when we were creating the wallet, we, we lived in our notebooks. We did so much in them, and we wanted to create a better version of it that we could use in projects going forward. So we actually created it originally as for someone who has a big project ahead that they have to tackle, and it's a lot of work, and you need like uh, milestones along the way you have to set up. So the, the notebook is a half planner, half notebook. So the front half is you know a calendar set up. The last half is line pages or grid dot. And in there, it gives you goal mapping guides, like set a goal that you're going to set three goals you're going to hit this week. And for each of those goals, now write out the actual to-do list. There's a, they break it out into three pieces. What are three things you have to do in order to accomplish that goal? And then it breaks that out into a monthly view and then in, a, in an annual view. So you can you know, really tear apart each of your um, goals into actionable items so you can make sure you're accomplishing them on a day-to-day basis so it all plays into what... So at the end of the month, you're like, I really got something done because I accomplished all these things that I can visibly see and work with. Um, so that was that's the idea of the notebook. And we launched that, I think it was June of 2015 of last year. And we asked for 10000 again and with the help of Funded, funded Today and hard work in developing a good product, we um, ended up raising 383000 on that project. <laughs> That's awesome. Can I just yeah. say that? <laughs> so um, I'm really interested in this product uh, because I'm looking at you know a stack of two dozen moleskins of my own, yep. right? Uh-huh. Um, and I'm interested, you know, in a world that is so app-driven and there's a digital product and a digital everything out there, why you decided to go analog and what it was that drew you to even wanting to make this. You know, that's the, when we told people this the first time, like brothers and sisters and family, they kind of laughed. They're like, why are you doing pen and paper? No one uses that. And then you say to them, you say, you know, there's just a feeling that comes with pen and paper when you write, when you interact in that way with, you know, what you're doing. It, it, it's just a different feeling. And people really like that. And after we told every one of them that they're like, oh yeah, I guess I do have a notebook that I use every day. And so, you know, it is technology driven, but like you said, you have a stack of moleskins. Most business people and most people in general still carry around that notebook because it just feels better. And it feels like you get more stuff done when you're writing them down, you're checking them off your list. It just is a good feeling. So for us, you know, we lived in it. We loved it. After doing research, we found that most people do still use a pen and paper alongside their digital um, apps and tools because it just feels good. Well, I think it's interesting, the, the combination here, right? Because I first I look at this and I'm like, oh, why wouldn't I just get a moleskin? But then mm-hmm. you start seeing like 
it's funny. It's, it's funny. Your inset for the pen, like yeah. <laughs> it seems so minor, but you are like always trying to figure out where to stick your pen and it's always exactly. sticking out and falling off, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was one of those things like in our innovation process, we walked around with it every day and we're like, man, I always need a pen. Where do I put this pen? And so we figured that out through that process of just using it every day and finding there was a need somewhere and then filling that. No, the lay flat design is that, t- tell me about that. Um, that's just so that if you're, you know, if you're writing in your notebook and you lay it down on the desk, it's, the pages aren't going to flip on it easily. It'll just lay flat without any problems based on how the binding is made and everything. It's designed to allow it to do that basically. Yeah. Cause mine are always <laughs> when they're brand new, they never lay flat, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's created in a certain way to allow it to do that. Um, so I don't know what, why it took so many decades for somebody to figure out there should be dual elastics. But <laughs> I know, right? Thanks for doing that. Um, okay, so um, with this one, uh, talk about the value, the compound effect of of the people who trusted you from the wallet, and just the straight up fact, the marketing value of having that list, and and how many backers you had from the wallet versus how many from just online selling of the wallet since the since the campaign, and and how that was before launching the notebook. Yeah, so. When we launched the wallet, we, you know, we had a list of friends and family who were nice enough to support us. Um, and it took us probably a week to get funded $10,000. And with the notebook, we, um, we now had built up, you know, our, our wallet Kickstarter had raised, uh, had gotten us 6,000 backers. And then after that, we went on our website and we're selling product and we had probably gained another 10,000 customer email list. And, um, so when we launched our notebook, it was really nice to be able to find people to be able to reach out to people directly to say, Hey, you liked our wallet. Here's our second product. And with that, we were able to get funded within, um, 12 hours of launching the notebook. So we got $10,000 within 12 hours. And I think from that list, from our customer list, we raised roughly $20,000 in total from emailing out our list of, uh, you know, our, our customers that we had gained so far. You know, I love that. I'm such a nerd for all the books about Warren Buffett and compound interest investing, you know, like mm-hmm. guys like Phil Fisher, common stocks, uncommon uh, profits. But um, what a value, right? To be able to double down <laughs> makes life easier going forward. Yeah, definitely. So is there anything you did in designing? I mean, we were talking beforehand about it's not enough to just do this stuff. We, you really need to de- like design the kind of company where these systems and processes can be consistent. And is there anything you did? Everybody says, oh, good customer service. Was there anything you guys did specifically trying to engender loyalty when you're selling a wallet so that these are people you can go back to because they actually like you still? Yeah, that was a... Yeah, we did. We did. We did a couple of things. One was customer service. You know, we tried really hard to take care of our customers. And that was a learning experience. My cousin who was working full time before I was, was spending probably 20 hours a week doing customer service. And we learned that we needed to get a team. You mean so like we returns could, or what, what does that look like doing customer um, service? E- emails, just responding to questions, you know, things like that. When, um, when, when, when another thing we did, let me to answer that. Let me go into a different story. Um, our wallet, um, we found out there was a design flaw in our wallet. Mm. Part of the wallet started to fray. Um, and so what we had to do, we realized that our customers were getting angry. So he was answering emails. And one thing we always said was, you know, we always take care of our customer no matter what. If they're unhappy, we either refund them or we'll just send them a new wallet, no questions asked. That's just how we take care of our customers because because of them, you know, we were able to invest $200 and make a company that made 170000 And it's only because of them. So we need to take care of them. So... 
what we did was that was our policy. We just send free returns. Um, another thing we did was we created when we heard their feedback, things were going wrong. We quickly responded. We studied our wallet more. We made it better and added some material um, to make it a better wallet. And then we gave all our customers a really deep discount, basically at cost to us to say, hey, here's a wallet for basically nothing. You can get the revised version if you want that and gave that so that our customers could see, you know, when we hear when we hear something, we're going to take care of it and make sure it's better and make sure we're always offering the highest quality product that we can. You know, this brings up something that uh, at the, you know, at the crowdfunding conference when we met, I felt like people did a good job of, of talking about that, especially for people who maybe haven't been in this game before, wouldn't have thought about is building in enough margin in your product that you can afford to take care of problems like that. Yeah. Can you talk about uh, pricing strategy and uh, you don't have to tell us what your costs are, but tell us <laughs> how you decided how much margin to build into it? Sure. Um, yeah, obviously you always have to, uh, fight for as much margin as you can because you want to be able to take care of your customers. You want to be able to do things for them that, you know, so that you're not dying. Cause the second you don't have any margin, you're going to go out of business and that's not helping anyone because you can't create more products that you feel will help them, you know, take a, have a better life and enjoy things more. Um, so, um, so for us, so I guess the question, sorry, the question is how do we, yeah. So like, was it just, Hey, we knew other wallets were selling for just under that $20 mark. So when we were choosing our products or where we're going to manufacture, we intentionally made these choices so we could still have margin or like, was it reverse engineered of you set the 20 bucks or the 19, whatever, and then you work backwards of what we can afford to put into it? Or was it, we're putting this much into it so we can charge this much? I see. Um, what we did for us was we created the product first. Um, first, we, we thought of products and materials that we could use that would give a good value to the customer, a quality product that you know wouldn't break the bank. But um, <clears throat> And then we worked backwards and said, okay, now how do we keep that quality there but protect our costs by working closely with our manufacturers to get good materials, to get good manufacturing processes and things like that to make sure we were um, you know, saving money where we could but also not hurting our customers by giving a low quality product. You know, we, we added materials and added to the production line of the, the wallet, which, you know, did hurt our margins, but at the same time, we kept the wallet at the same price because we felt like that just was needed in order to have a good product. So it's a, it's a hard balance that you have to strike to, you know, meet that need of protecting those margins. Um, but yeah, for us, we usually don't go into a product that we can't, like if, if we know that a product is going to have lower margins, like we'll study the price and try to test out um, try to think about what it would cost to make that. And if we can't think we can get a good enough margin, we don't even look at those products because it's just too hard to work in a, where, where our standards are. If someone doesn't like it, we're going to refund it or we're going to send it. We're going to um, send them a new one. We just have to be sure that we have good margins that can help us um, allow for that type of customer service, not customer care. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, let's talk about phase two. So obviously for the wallet and the, the notebook, so, you know, vastly exceed initial expectations. Um, what is your strategy looks like, or what, what advice would you have for people of, you know, Kickstarter is great, but that's just the first month. What about the online sales thereafter and, and, uh, advice about setting up your website to attract similar customers or, or like, what was your strategy of now just going to web sales? Um, for us, you know, there's a couple of pieces. First, you have to figure out your, you know, your fulfillment, either get a good partner to ship for you. For my cousin and I, we realized that we, we feel like our strength is in developing good products and 
um, innovative products. And that's where we want to spend most of our time. So we're of the side where we say, let's outsource as much as we can to other people so we don't have to get buried down in these in like fulfilling orders and um, just dealing with day-to-day tasks. Anywhere we can, we try to outsource things. So that's been a huge help to us. Um, can, I, can I ask, did you, did you know that right off the bat? Like you just know yourself and that's not my gig? Or did you have to like take everything on to realize you shouldn't be doing everything? Um, well, working with my family's company, I learned that um, uh, you don't want to overstaff yourself too quick because some, sometimes things just don't work out how you want. You know, there are times when you'll bring on a lot of people to help and it doesn't work or you'll get so buried in the details um, that you can't focus on what your strengths are. And I think I learned that. So for me, I learned that from just being at a couple different jobs. I worked at a couple startups early on in my life um, where I was an employee rather than someone starting. And I just saw that if you don't focus on what you're good at, good at and outsource everything else, it, um, it really hurts you long term. And that goes back to, you know, you have to have margins that allow you to do that. You know, we don't do products unless we can get good margins because we know we have to outsource so many things so that we can keep focusing on what our strengths are. So for us, we did focus on that right from the beginning. You know, let's try to outsource where we can to, um, to allow us to focus on our strengths. You know, I'm interested in this, you know, having worked at other startups, um, you know, you think about 200 years ago or 300 years ago within the apprenticeship model, no wonder people did well at their careers when they got to see live how that all works instead of trying to invent it with somebody else who hasn't done it, (laughs) you know, reading from books or whatever. Um, what value do you feel like there was, what other values do you feel like there was of, you know, actually being inside a startup instead of going straight from maybe corporate America to a startup of your own? Um, I learned a couple things, things of, you know, one of the big lessons I learned was making yourself look professional from the outside was really important. That was a big lesson I learned um, because if you're just, you know, that, that equates to, you know, having solid pictures and um, videos and things like that to make yourself look good. That was a big thing. Um, learning how to treat your people was a really big thing. Being loyal because when you're a startup, oftentimes you can't a- allow the benefits you'd like to get people. So treating them well and making them feel valued was a huge thing I saw as people treated me well in companies. I really appreciated that and me wanted to st- make, made me want to stay with those companies. Um, let's see, what else? There's, there's so many lessons learned. Um, a lot of times it just, one of the big things was, you know, startups, they just take a lot of time. They're a lot of work and you just have to work really hard in order to get it, in order to get where you want to get. Um, what, yeah. What advice would you have for someone who is thinking, maybe I'll go work at a startup before I start my own company? What, what, uh, what would be your recommendations about choosing what kind of startup to go work for? Let's see. I, uh, I would say, you know, obviously go to a startup that is doing something that you're interested in. So I would, I focused on startups that were selling products. Like I didn't look at app developing cause I wasn't as interested in that. I didn't look at other things. I looked at companies that were selling a product. So obviously finding one that fits what you're interested in. Um, another one was just probably the most important is finding one, finding startups where there's good people because that's everything, you know, working with people that are honest and want to work hard and will treat you well is just invaluable because those people will allow you to, to experience more and do more and you'll just enjoy your time there more. So I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing of anything is just working with people and startups that you can trust and that you enjoy being with. That's great. Um, I think when, uh, I think sometimes we underestimate, I don't know for myself, like I think about, uh, the ambition maybe I had when I was, when I dropped out of university to start my first company. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, maybe I kind of had been sucked into the money is going to be so great that I didn't always, I wasn't, I was always concerned with what I was going to have to do. 
And like entrepreneurship is so hard. Like it just beats you up so bad. If you don't mm-hmm. really like what you're doing and then it sucks this hard, you know, <laughs> it just makes it that much more inviting to quit. Right. Totally. Yeah. You have to enjoy what you're doing. Cause it's, you're going to hate, even though like you like doing it, you're going to hate it some days because it's so stinking hard. Um, so you better find something that you're passionate about and that you like for sure. Um, okay. So let's talk about, um, the desk. Tell us, tell us about Ervo. Yeah. So the desk was, um, it was an interesting product project. We, my cousin and I had kind of felt like, um, we had found a pattern rather than luck to doing Kickstarters. Like we had, we, at this point we had launched three Kickstarters together and two of those had raised in the six figures and one of them raised 70,000, but either one was well above its funding goal. So we realized that there was something to what we were doing and we want, and there was a, but there was a very big, um, bottleneck and that was in the innovation and product development phase and how much time it took to create a great product. So we decided that we were going to outsource, um, sort of the legwork of doing all that. And just, and so what we did was we went and found someone who we felt was driven and was a good individual to sort of do all the legwork for us. And we would consult and coach them along the way. And so we found a great person, loved working with them. Um, he developed, so we would tell him what to do and how and good ways to go about it. He would give input to us too. And he had good insights and together we created a company where he was sort of spending most of the time and we were just sort of overlooking it. And that was the idea of it. So with that one, we, we developed this desk and similar to the bag, it was a more expensive item. So we made sure all the fact- manufacturing was in place before we launched it, made sure we understood all of our costs. And then we launched it, um, I can't remember our goal. I think the goal on that one off the top of my head, I think it was 30,000. Um, and we ended up raising 370,000, um, which was awesome. But one thing we did with that was we worked with funded today. Again, we work with them on every campaign cause we just trust them. Um, they, uh, we worked with them at the beginning and on day one, because of cross collaborations and things that they did, they were able to help us raise a hundred thousand dollars on the first day, which was so exciting. It was so fun to be a part of that and see that happen. But yeah, so that was the, that was the desk and we ended up at 370,000 about. Um, and, and tell us at all of, of thinking through like, um, you know, the ups and downs of, of a process of working on a product like that, that was maybe a little different for you than the other um, crowdfunding of, you know, a small item. Yeah. Talking about the process or the product. Sorry. Sure. Just back and forth to China and stuff like that. And okay. Yeah. Well, one thing we've definitely learned with this is, you know, this is a, if you look on our Kickstarter page, Ervo, if you just search Ervo on Kickstarter, you can see that it's a, it's a big desk. Um, and so there was obvious things that I had never dealt with. I've always worked with small products. So shipping this thing has been a logistical nightmare. Um, for example, with the wallet, we ship everything to the U S and we ship internationally from our U S warehouse. But with this, because it's so big, I mean, it, it weighs about 40 pounds and it is, you know, three feet by four feet when it's all folded down. Um, when you ship this thing, it's a, it's pretty hard. So what we had to do is we had to ship it, um, in mass from China to all the different locations around the world. So we shipped it to Sydney, the UK, Canada, two warehouses in the U S and to Hong Kong so that we could have, you know, effect cost effective shipping from those locations. So learning that was a big uh, learning curve for me. Um, so moving forward, we've kind of said, you know, let's not do any more, um, big projects, let's big products. Let's stick to smaller things that we can ship pretty easily. That was a, that was probably the biggest lesson learned on this whole project. Sure. Well, um, thinking about specifically China, you know, um, this, these eight years that you had spent doing it in the family business, um, obviously now doing it for basics, 
Um, what are some things that uh, maybe some myths about offshore manufacturing or, or things that aren't as hard as people think they are? Or just tell us what you wouldn't have known if you hadn't done it yourself. Yeah, there's there's definite tricks to, to working with China and um, protecting yourself. If you don't know how to do it, you don't do it right, you can really get burned and lose a lot of cash really fast. Um, for us, for me, I mean, one of the biggest things is having a good quality control process. You know, we use a company that I highly recommend. They're called Asia Inspection, and they do help you, us do it. Do a, you know their website? We'll put a link to it right on your page. I, think it's, I believe it's just asiainspection.com. Okay. Let me check. Um, yeah, yeah, it's asiainspection.com. Okay. And they, um, they give you a method. They're a third party who goes in and will actually test anything you want in these factories. You can talk about actually talking to the owner of the factory. You can talk about talking to the employees. You can talk about, you know, smell the product so it doesn't smell funny. Uh, check Pantone colors, check this and that, make sure they're on time. And you can have them go in at the beginning, middle and end of the manufacturing process. So they're testing all different things. So um, that's really important. Another big thing is you can never over communicate as you're working with China. Um, <laughs> you, you may think that you have communicated enough and you'll get a sample back and everything is just so wrong. So what I've learned is you have to create graphical images and then you have to talk through it over, over um, an email. And then after that, you have to then set up a Skype video conference and then you talk through all those exact same details again over a video conference. And then you chat with them on Skype and talk through it one more time. Like <laughs> you just, you can't over communicate as you work with them because you're trying to explain something that's your own product that no one else has ever seen before. And it's just hard to really convey that based on the language barrier, the cultural differences, and everything. So you can never over-communicate when you're working with China. Okay. Um, what about the style of communication? You mentioned when you are talking before that you feel like there's a, uh, a specific way that you, that you do communicate with them to ensure understanding. Or to, I, I didn't quite catch what you meant when we talked about how you communicate with them. Well, just like I, like I just said, maybe I'm not answering this right, but um, doing a... Communicate, communicating with them in multiple methods. So mm. one, you'll do create a presentation and you'll explain things in, graphically. And then you'll do a phone call and you'll talk through it over the phone through voice. And then you'll explain it through a video conference. You'll be pointing out things about the product. And so I think using different methods, everybody, you know, everyone learns in different ways and it goes in the same thing. Like some people learn better by hearing it. Some people by seeing pictures, some by video call, video conferences, so using different methods of communication to communicate the same exact detail over six different, you know, mediums is a really, really helpful. Okay. So it wasn't some like order of events or anything. It was the fact that these multiple, these redundant systems mean that the combination of them, you have a higher probability. They really get the point. Exactly. Uh -huh. Bridge the language gap, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, listen, there's, there's have something awesome. There's figure out how to get people to want it from you. Like you guys, you have your high production quality videos. You have your high production quality photos. I mean, they're, they're, they're professional. By the way, how do you make choices about what's good enough or not? Or is it you have a photographer you know and love? Or have you really just, um, you know the look you're looking for? What, what do you do for looking professional? Yeah, so me and my cousin actually both love that part. That The creative process is what we really love. Um, you know, in developing the product and in creating good images and videos. So that's something that we actually do all ourselves, all our, all our pictures and everything is all our own. Um, so for us, it's, you know, we know what we love. We know what we want to do. We have a hard time actually handing it off, which is probably a weakness of ours. Handing, handing the creative process off is really, really difficult for us. Um, so for us, we've just, 
you know, invested in good equipment and spent time. We both already did photography. You know, I did some paid professional photography before I did this business. And so I kind of already had a kind of a skill set where I enjoyed doing this stuff. So with that type of stuff, we sort of do it all on our own and um, make it exactly how we want it because we're the one behind the camera taking the pictures and the videos and stuff. Okay. Um, so have something awesome, do a hundred iterations, know that it's, you know, be hypercritical, self-critical, yeah. know it's awesome, <laughs> you know, figure out how to attract people to want it from you, have the high production quality, do good, good enough customer service. People want to stay in contact with you, all these kind of things. But then something else we talked about earlier is, you know, the leadership, the system. So this doesn't all break down. And so people don't hate each other, you know, reduce the friction in making all this happen. Talk to us about um, maybe a time where you feel like uh, things weren't going as well and what you do now instead. Let's see. Um, luckily, I've been fortunate enough to have a good business partner where, you know, we, we, uh, we've, we're cousins. So we've known each other our whole lives and we've been really close cousins. Um, but now we're in the process where we're developed, where we're adding employees and um, learning to communicate. And what we've learned is, it's similar to working with China. Maybe it isn't the language and culture barrier. Maybe it's just that's how people are. You have to over-communicate as m- way more than you think. Um, we started using a tool called Asana, which has been helpful for us to you know, set up systems and create things. It's sort of like a checklist on steroids online where you can create checklists, put dates when they're due, assign them to people, and coordinate with one another really easily. Um, and that's been really key for us is just – for me, it's been taking that same process of communicating things to China and crossing that over to communicating it to my employees now is, you know, I can't expect them to understand what I want the first time around because it's the way I have it in my mind is very different from how they understand what I'm saying. I need to give them a graphical explanation. I need to, you know, get up and talk to them in person. I need to send an email, do all these different things to make sure they understand what we're doing because it, it's hard to, and maybe it's my um, weakness. I just can't communicate it very well, but learning to over communicate is a good thing. I think sometimes. Yeah, I uh, I remember one time, I I can't even, I wish I could remember which book this was, but I can I remember w- right where I was in Calgary when I was driving when I heard it. Um, they talked about how sometimes what leaders think is resistance from staff is a lack of clarity on the leader's part, and yeah. I was like such a slap for me of like oh my team you know maybe there's times that I'd had friction with my own team and I'm thinking they just don't get it. And it was like a new way to take personal responsibility for, well, maybe they don't get it, or maybe, <laughs> maybe you're just terrible at explaining Jess. Let's, <laughs> let's have a let's look at the other, you know, yeah, exactly. maybe you need to, maybe you need, maybe that's what needs the extra effort here. Um, mm. what, uh, what, as you look forward and you look at greater systemization or the idea of like, let's say you could build a system that's so good that this is the kind of business that could become the sellable kind of business. What kind of things do you look going forward of like, are, what are priorities for you of what you want to build as far as systematic approach going forward? Yeah. One thing that we're, we're trying to do is we're trying to make it so, you know, my cousin and I can, like I said before, focus on our strength, which is developing products and developing, um, uh, yeah, basically more Kickstarter products that we can put up. Um, so we're trying now we've hired on two more people in operations and our goal is to sort of hand as much as we can over to them so that the company can effectively run without us and we can just focus on this product development and Kickstarter process and they can do everything else. So we're learning a lot about management right now. Um, but, uh, for us, it's, you know, my cousin has been good to, um, like 
create that binder that you always see in every company you work at that says, here's the steps, here's the processes. When you have questions, turn to this. And as we work with our employees, one thing that we've found has been really helpful is we tell them, as you do a new process, once you feel like you understand it, we want you to write the, um, the procedure for that because they've just learned for the first time. They, they know what's confusing and what's not working right. So we have them make like a screencast, you know, record what they're doing as they do it on the computer and write out a, a procedure because they understand them a different perspective than I do coming from when it's my own company, I have different thought process and different ways of doing things. But if I can get an employee who's just learned it for the first time to write the process, it seems to be more effective and they're better at training people because they have a different perspective than I do. And that's been really helpful for us as well. You know, what a key, I mean, not only duplication factor of not having to do it yourself as the leader, but mm-hmm. what yeah. a way to give people some ownership and to, you know, I look at like lean methodologies um, or, or the Toyota production system and like how great people in that world are at having everybody at work turn their brain on. Like nobody's just our warm body filling a spot at those companies. Like they really, they really invite everybody to be a contributor by what they let them do instead of just like the poster on the wall. Like they actually care what other people think, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting how, you probably get more ownership from the staff, like more uh, of this feeling of like they feel like they matter and you didn't have to do the work. Like it seems like a double, <laughs> a double benefit. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I learned too, I was at a, I was at a, one of the startups and I was in my, one of my jobs was to implement a new system. And I went the, I learned the wrong way that I, I when I went about this, I was doing all this myself. I, I took care of the sales department's implementation of it. I did the, you know, the fulfillment side, it was a, it was a system that basically kind of like, a or what are they called? Like sort of like a resource planning type of a system. And when I did it, I, I took care of it all myself rather than trying to delegate and have other people do it. And I learned, and because I did it that way, it kind of failed because I didn't push other people to be a part of it and take ownership and things that they were doing. And, um, and so go, if I could go back and do it again, I'd say, okay, sales department, this is the new system. I need you to talk with the, the, the customer service team who's offering us this new system and say, how do we get this to work for our department and allow other people to take that ownership? Because if I would have done that, it probably would have succeeded. So learning to let other people take ownership is so critical in the success of any change or anything that's going on in your company, really. You know, it's interesting, though, because if we have any desire as the leader, like, if we have any flaw in us of like wanting to be important or wanting to be seen as the smart one, the special one, <laughs> there's so many opportunities to fall into that trap, right? And to be the yeah. only one who can write the who can write the employee manual and like the the you know my Navy SEAL buddy that we we went and taught this class in Nigeria with the Special Operations Command. He's like. <laughs> He's always like, oh, yeah, no, I've got my eight-year degree in micromanagement. I'm good at it. I can just (laughs) – and uh, so anyways, um, and any thoughts about overcoming the the natural part in us that wants to feel special instead of treating our staff or everyone else like equals? Because there's legitimately different roles, and then there's my exaggeration of that role, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, if you want to, it's, it's humility. It's if you want to become humble, be an entrepreneur and learn how many mistakes you can make in a day. <laughs> you learn so much as you go along it. Um, but I think it's just one thing for me that helps is um, finding, you know, when you hire people, um, make sure you're hiring people that you can really trust. Um, I guess that doesn't really answer the question, but 
hire people that you can really trust that you can say, you know, they're, they're really good at this. I can trust them to do it. Um, but your question was more asking, how do we say, how do we get away yeah, from how do you, the most important yeah, person? How do company? you humble yourself? So situations don't have to humble you. Yeah. Um, no, oh, that's tough. Um, I'd say I'm probably still learning that. I, you, uh, just have to remember where you came from and what you're doing and that you're just learning too. I mean, the second that you can be humble and let other people, um, teach you is probably the biggest lesson you can learn because your company can grow so much faster as you learn to empower people and praise people around you. They just feel like, like they're like, they want to be that. It's kind of like what I said when I, when you want to go find a startup to work with, find good people that make you feel like, you know, you can do it because when I saw people that praised me and made me, um, feel like I was accomplishing something, it made me excited to be there. So maybe for me, it's thinking back on people who did that for me and how that made me feel and how much more effective it made me. Maybe that's a good way to, to try to figure that out is look back on people who made you feel that way. And yeah. and anybody come to mind, run. anybody come to mind right now for you? Yeah, actually I had my family's business. I had a manager, um, he was probably the best manager I've ever had. His name was uh, Mark Monson. He, whenever I did anything, he was very effective at you know recognizing first that when I had done something right, and if I had worked hard or worked late at night, he always said, "Hey, I saw you were on it like this late. Way to go! Like that's awesome. Thanks for working hard." And if I made mistakes, he had already given me that positive feedback. So if he had to tell me I did something wrong, I didn't care because I trusted that he had my best interest because he was always praising me. You know, it made me feel really good. So as he critiqued me and told me to do better, I knew that he was doing it to make me a better person rather than just to get after me. Mm. So that was, that was a really powerful lesson to me. I always, actually, when I'm doing management stuff, I think about, you know, what would he do in this situation? How would he handle it? It was really helpful, a good mentor for me. Yeah, sounds like it. Any, any other stories that come to mind of, of things about him that you try to emulate or, or a situation you can remember? Um, let's see. Yeah, one is you know, you always hear about those people who lead by example. And it's, that's a huge attribute. When I would leave the office, oftentimes he would be there late, you know, answering emails, be the last person in the office. And the first one in the morning, he, you know, leading by example, and just setting that standard for yourself as a leader, I think is just so important. Um, that was another cool attribute that he had is he would always be not always, you know, he would go home early sometimes, but when things needed to get done, he just buckled down and got it done. And that was, that was also impressive to see. I think it's just that actions speak louder than words. Whenever he said something, he would do it himself first. And that was uh, impressive in a leader. There is something so easy to follow about people like that, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, another question we like to ask guests is uh, with our charity, with Child Rescue, trying to combat child sex trafficking, um, you guys have been really good at getting the word out. Uh, what advice would you have for us about getting more people involved in protecting kids from kids from traffickers or getting people involved in helping kids get out of trafficking situations? Um, let's see. Just like attracting people to the cause. Yeah. So one thing that, you know, like I said, in with our wallet, when we did the Kickstarter, you know, we were making $500 a day. Then we turned on social media and things like that. Uh, social media paid advertising and that just boosted us overnight. So I mean, the biggest way to get word out is, you know, but when you're a nonprofit, probably hard to do paid advertising, but, um, just relying on people to help you spread the word um, through, you know, social media. That's such a powerful force right now. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah. Well, no, let's talk about that. So uh, it's pretty easy to, you know, drain a bank account doing paid media wrong. 
Any yeah. any things that you've learned for people to think about as as guideposts if if maybe they don't have experience with that world of whether it's Facebook ads or anything like that of hey don't don't do this you'll just lose money. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say let's see for us you know when we did Kickstarter we we um, we we paid people to do it for us because we knew we weren't experts. You know, we had to have people do it for us. Now we've studied it. It's we've we spent a lot of time to learn it, and we're doing it ourselves now. And uh, we help a few other people with it. But um, it's uh, it's just uh, something you just have to get in and do. And you can. Um, I one thing I guess I can give one tip out. There's something in there called uh, lookalike audiences. <laughs> using those, you know, you upload emails, and Zach maybe talked about this a bit when he was talking, but. You know, you can through Facebook, you can target people based on email lists you have and create audience that are, that are audiences of people that are interested in what you're doing. Um, that's one thing that we've done. That's a topic I would say if you're looking into doing your own paid advertising study, lookalike audiences. It's been really helpful for us. There's a gem of, of wisdom that I can hand out. Um, and where, where does somebody look into that? Um, unfortunately, I don't know that I'm actually not, my cousin does all the marketing, so I don't actually deal with it day to day. But, um, if you go on Facebook, I'm sure if you Google lookalike audiences, you can, um, learn more about that specifically. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as books, are you much of a book guy? Do you have any book recommendations for innovators today? Um, I actually, I'm not much of a book guy, unfortunately. I do a lot of reading that's more, um, that's less business, so I can't give any good recommendations business-wise. I apologize. Um, what What do you read instead? I'm a big, like, Jason Bourne genre fiction guy. What What do you read? Yeah, that type of stuff. That's what I like to read. Stuff like that. That sort of, I, I sort of use books as a way to relax and escape mm. everything else for me. I listen to a lot of audio books. I'll do sci-fi, fantasy, Jason Bourne type stuff. Like I'll do anything, anything that that people recommend to me that's good. I, I like to use books as a sort of a way to relax. Who uh, in the jo- Jason Bourne uh, genre? What what authors? Any anybody come to mind on that side of the world? Um, well, actually, my I really listen to more, do more books more related to um, a fantasy. Actually, um, so my favorite author is Brandon Sanderson. He has a couple really good ones that I really like. Okay. Have to check those out for the road trips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're road um, trip type books. Well, listen, there, there's a lot of excitement about crowdfunding. I mean, as of as of this morning, you know, for the first time in 80 years, it's now legal to do crowdfunded equity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a, this is a space that's gaining a lot of traction. Um, what what mistakes do you see people making? Like people who who haven't done it yet that are, you know. They're, they're spouting out all their wisdom that is not based on experience. What, what kind of myths do you see out there of things that you wish people wouldn't promote because it's not helping others? Like this is easy. Um, yeah, definitely one that this is easy. It's, you know, one of the things that I always say is that, you know, it's risk free because, you know, a lot of times you don't have to spend a lot of money. You can do it without it. But the risk that people have is the time. It takes so much time to run one of these campaigns if you want to do it effectively. Like, you can just put something up. That's probably something that a lot of people do is they think it's easy and they just put something up and it doesn't look good. It doesn't solve a problem in people's lives or something. And, you know, you have to put in a lot of time um, in order to run one of these campaigns. It's, but it's something that you can do. I did it when I had a full-time job and was able to make it work. Um, but it does take a lot of time. And I would also say that people that put up products they um, will go on to Kickstarter too early before the idea is actually solidified. They'll say, this is what we want to create. We're still working on it, but it's going to look like this. You know, when I see people do that, it's painful because they don't, 
people can't have confidence. That's already scary enough for people to invest an idea that isn't, hasn't been fully manufactured yet. So you have to give them as much confidence to the end consumer as you can, because it's already a risky way to spend for a consumer to spend their hard earned money. So yeah, just being sure you put in the time and plan to give yourself enough time to have a project that's fully completed and ready to go. is probably a big, uh, a big part of it. That's great. Well, listen, we appreciate the time that you spent and, uh, and congratulations on the success. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.